Chapter Thirteen of After the Divorce by Grazia de Leda. Translated by Maria Horner Lansdale. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Denham. Time passed on. The sky and weather changed with the changing seasons, but among the inhabitants of the little village all remained much as usual. In the course of the winter Giovanna gave birth to a weak, puling girl-baby, which did nothing but cry. Dr. Pora, or Pededa, as he still continued to be called, came all the way from Nuoro expressly to stand for the poor little creature. He arrived in a carriage, bundled up like a bale of clothing, his rosy face beaming as usual. Quite a number of persons had assembled to see him, and he distributed smiles and greetings indiscriminately to all who would have them, assuring a group of Brontu's friends who had gone to meet him that he remembered perfectly seeing all of them at Nuoro. This gratified them immensely, all but one, that is, who said he had never been to Nuoro. "'It is of no consequence,' said the lawyer cheerfully. "'I am sure to see you there some day.' This was a somewhat equivocal assurance, as it seldom happened that any of them went to Nuoro except on law business. However, the man was highly pleased. Aunt Bacchisia, watching the new arrival divest himself of his greatcoat, shawl, and various other wraps, thought that he looked more than ever like a magia. "'You seem to have grown stouter,' she said, looking at the layers of clothing. "'Oh, this is a mere nothing,' he replied, at which they all laughed delightedly. The baptism was to be conducted with great pomp, and Aunt Martina, probably for the first time in her life, slackened the strings of her purse and sent to Nuoro for wines and sweets of the best quality.' She could not sleep the night before, however, and passed a wretched day, tormented by the fear that some of the delicacies might be spirited away. On the morning of the ceremony, Giovanna got up early and helped her mother-in-law to prepare the macaroni for dinner. Then she went back to bed, where she remained in a sitting posture, propped up by pillows, and with the bedclothes drawn up about her waist. Above that she wore her blouse and bodice, and she had on her wedding coif and bridal kerchief. She looked somewhat pale, but very handsome, her great eyes seeming larger even than usual. The table was set in the bedchamber, and covered with a linen cloth, which Aunt Martina now took out from her chest, for the first time since it had been bought. The ceremony was to take place at about eleven o'clock of a very cold morning. From the pale sky a thick white vapour fell, enveloping the village and all the surrounding country in a misty veil. The narrow streets were deserted, and here and there frozen puddles lay like pieces of broken dirty glass. An absolute silence reigned in the open space before the de Jasse's house, opposite which 
the almond-tree stretched its bare black limbs against the misty background. All at once the common was invaded by a troop of urchins, bundled up in ragged garments and odds and ends of fur, with fringed red caps on their heads, and wearing old boots, some of them almost as large as the little persons who wore them. Groups of people stood about, principally shivering women, coughing and sneezing and smelling of soot and smoke. Then the baptismal procession appeared. First came two children looking solemn and important, and carrying candles from which red ribbons fluttered. These were followed by the woman with the infant wrapped in shawls, and covered with a piece of greenish brocade like the standard of San Constantino. Then the godfather appeared his round little face, rosy and smiling as ever, emerging from the folds of his big coat and black-and-white shawl. With him walked the godmother, one of Aunt Martina's daughters, a lank young woman with a long, narrow face, who reminded one of a shadow seen at sunset. She had to lean down in order to reach her companion's ear. With the godparents, came Brontu, freshly shaven and gay, and behind them followed a group of friends and relatives, marching along in step with a noise like the tramp of horses' hoofs. Last of all came the godmother's servant-maid, a shivering creature blue with cold. She carried a small basin under one arm, and kept both hands buried in the pockets of her gown. From time to time she thrust out her tongue to catch the drops that kept running down from her nose. The boys trotted alongside, forming two wings to the procession, their eyes eagerly fixed upon the godfather, who returned their gaze with an amused stare, and hailed them jocosely. "'Why, hello, you here! What are you looking for, little hedgehogs?' "'He's lame,' said one. "'Hush!' "'Keep quiet, or he won't give us anything.' The procession passed on. The faces of the urchins fell. Some of them were angry, and others seemed on the verge of tears. "'Cripple!' one began to call, but stopped suddenly. The godfather had pitched a handful of copper coins into the air, and the whole troop flung themselves after them, yelling, tumbling over one another, pushing, fighting, struggling, rolling over and over, almost upsetting the maidservant, who instantly began to deal out blows and curses in greater proportion even than the coins themselves. Fresh handfuls of money, and renewed scuffling by an ever-increasing crowd of ragamuffins, continued to the very doors of the church, where priest Elias stood awaiting the party, and listening to something the red-robed sacristan was urging upon him. The sacristan was in fact afraid that priest Elias, with his usual kindly indulgence, might be persuaded to return to the house with the baptismal party, whereas it was the custom of the neighbourhood for the priest to do that only in cases where the parents had been united by religious ceremony. He was therefore exhorting the other to practice severity with Brontu, with the godparents, with the whole company, in fact. "'Your honour,' said he, 
will surely not return to the house with this infant. Why, it is almost illegitimate. On no account should such respect be paid to it. Go and see if they are coming, said the priest. They are not in sight yet. No, your honour will not go. And how about you? Shall you not go? inquired the priest with a slight smile. Oh, with me it is an altogether different matter. I go on account of the sweetmeats, not to do honour to that rabble. At this moment the company came in sight, and the ceremony presently began. No sooner had the baby's bald little red head been uncovered than it began to emit sounds like the bleating of a hoarse kid. The godfather stood by, smiling, with a lighted taper in his hand, doing his best to remember the creed, Giovanna having implored him to recite it conscientiously, so that the baptism might be valid. Almost the entire crowd of urchins had followed the party inside the church, and there was a pattering like rats running about, as the sacristan would chase them all out, only presently to come stealing back. The woman who had carried the baby, and the maid-servant with the basin, seated themselves on the steps of a side-altar, where they anxiously awaited the godfather's present. At last the service was over, the tips had been given, the baby wrapped up again, and Bronto and his friends stood waiting awkwardly for the priest, who had gone into the sacristy to remove his robes. Would he come back or not? Was he going to the house with the newly baptised infant or no? There was an uncomfortable pause, and then, as he did not appear, the procession set out somewhat mournfully on the return journey, followed by the triumphant sacristan, to whom Brontu would dearly have liked to administer blows in place of the expected sweets. All along the route the people came out to see them go by, and many faces, especially those of the women, lighted up with ill-natured smiles as they perceived that the priest was not there. Oh, it was like the baptism of a bastard! Giovanna, albeit not really expecting the priest, grew a shade paler when the company invaded her chamber without him. She kissed the little purple creature sadly, feeling as though the outlook for the poor child was very dark indeed. "'I remembered every word of the creed from beginning to end,' announced the godfather. "'Happy mother, your child will be a wonder, as tall as its godmother,' and as gay as its godfather. "'If only it may be as prosperous as its godfather,' murmured Giovanna. "'And now,' cried the young man, joyously clapping his hands, "'come to dinner. What a pleasant custom it is! Upon my honour it is a charming custom!' And he clapped his hands again, as though calling a crowd of children. They all took their places at table, where the macaroni, which had already been served, was to be followed by a beautiful roast pig, exhaling an odour of rosemary. It was only a few days after the baptism that a strange though not unprecedented event occurred in Orlei. Near Isidoro Pane's hut was an ancient dung-heap, 
abandoned for so long that it had become almost petrified. It was covered with a growth of sickly-looking vegetation, and emitted no odour, looking like some sort of artificial mound. One evening, at about dusk, while the fisherman was preparing his supper, he heard sounds in the direction of this mound, and went to the door to see what they were. The weather was cold, and in the clear greenish twilight he saw a group of black figures, chiefly women, advancing, singing to the accompaniment of some instrument. Isidoro understood what it was, and went to meet them. The women, about twenty in all, old and young, were chanting in a melancholy monotone, with sudden breaks and changes, a weird song or exorcism against the bite of a tarantula, while a blind beggar, a pallid young man, miserably clad in soiled and ragged women's clothing, accompanied them on a primitive instrument called a seraya, a sort of cittern made out of a dried sow's bladder. There were only three other men in the party, and in one of these, with a flushed, feverish face and one hand bound up, the fisherman recognised Jacobi de Jas. Isidoro advanced, and joining the party, laid one finger on the bandaged hand, Jacobi, meanwhile, gazing at him wildly, his eyes transfixed with terror. "'Are you afraid you are going to die from a tarantula bite?' "'No, no,' said Isidoro, smiling. The women continued their chant. There were seven widows, seven wives, and seven maids. One of the widows was Jacobi's sister. She walked at his side, fresh and pink as ever, notwithstanding her wild state of alarm and anxiety, and her shrill little voice, like the note of a lively cricket, trilled and trembled high above all the others. "'He is suffering,' said one of the men to Isidoro in a low tone. "'Ah!' said the fisherman gravely. The words chanted by the women ran as follows. St. Peter he walked down to the sea, and into the water his keys dropped he. Then the Lord unto him did say, My Peter, what is it ails thee to-day? Of deadly bites I bear the smart in my two feet and my back and my heart. Peter, take of the sad thorn-tree, pounded as fine as fine may be. Take it three days for thy wound, so shall Peter be made sound. Tarantula with the painted belly, you have a daughter straightly born. Straightly is your daughter born, one for the mountain I leave forlorn, one for the mountain and one for the valley. You have killed me, and I will kill you. Meanwhile, the group had stopped in front of the mound. The two men, who were provided with spades, began to dig, and Isidoro stood waiting with Jacobi, the chanting women, and the blind man still playing on his strange instrument. Jacobi silently watched the operations of his two friends, and Isidoro watched him, 
puzzled by the transformation he had undergone. He seemed indeed like an altogether different person. His face was inflamed and drawn with fright, and the little eyes, which usually twinkled so shrewdly from beneath their bald brows, were dim with a childish terror of death. When they had come to the end of the chant, the women began again at the first line, the instrument continuing the accompaniment on the same monotonous key as before. It sounded like the humming of a swarm of bees in flight. Puffs of icy wind blew from the west, cutting the faces of the group gathered about the mound like knives. The purple-blue of the sky was fading into a greenish tint, like the face of a lake when the sun has left it, and over the entire scene there hung a pall of indescribable melancholy, the dull, cold twilight, the darkening uplands, the black village, the shadowy group of people, performing a superstitious rite with all the faith of heathen idolaters. The two men dug with friendly zeal, throwing up spadefuls of black earth mixed with rags, eggshells, and refuse of all kinds. As it covered their feet and legs, they would mount higher, bending to their task, panting and sweating, while the women continued their chant, and the blind man his monotonous accompaniment. A hole of sufficient depth having at last been dug, and Anna Rosa, never ceasing for an instant to emit the same shrill, mournful sounds, helped Jacobi to remove his coat, and then, taking him by the hand, they led him to the edge of the excavation. He jumped in at a bound, and the two men, pushing him down with their hands, hastily piled on the earth until he was buried up to the neck. The performance that then took place was even more extraordinary. The head, looking as though it had been severed from the body and stuck in the centre of this heap of refuse, was surrounded by sparse vegetation, which trembled in the breeze as though affrighted, while overhead hung the melancholy sky. Hardly had the two men completed their task, and stood the one wiping the perspiration from his forehead with his sleeve, and the other knocking off the dirt that was sticking to his hands, when the women closed in a circle around the head, and began to dance to the sound of their own chanting voices, and the instrument still played by the blind man, who stood with his sightless balls and pale, impassive face, turned towards the distant horizon. This continued for some time, then the dancing ceased, the circle broke, but the chanting still went on. Isidoro and the other men threw themselves on the mound, and with spades and hands had soon disinterred Jacobi. He was perspiring profusely when he emerged, covered with dirt, and his face and neck were purple. He said he had felt as though he would suffocate. Then he shook himself and thrust first one arm and then the other into the sleeves of the coat which his sister held ready. "'Well, so you're not going to die after all, little spring bird,' said Isidoro jokingly. The other, however, made no reply. The cold wind struck his perspiring body with an icy chill. 
His face grew pallid, and his teeth chattered. They walked off in the direction of Aunt Anna Rosa's house, Isidoro, who by this time had lost all interest in his supper, accompanying them. "'Did you kill it?' he inquired of the sick man, remembering to have heard that if one kills a tarantula with his ring finger, he acquires the power to cure the bite with a simple touch of the same finger. "'No,' said Jacobi, and then, while the weird chanting still continued, he gave an account of his misfortune. "'I was asleep. Suddenly I felt something like the sting of a wasp. I woke up all in a perspiration.' "'Ah! It had stung me! It had stung me, the horrible tarantula! I saw it as plain as I see you, but it was some distance off on the wall. Ah! The devil take you, accursed creature! So I came right home. Do you know, I'm afraid to die. I've been afraid for ever so long.' "'But we all have to die sometime, whenever the hour comes,' said Isidoro seriously. "'Yes, that is true. We all have to, sometime,' agreed one of the men. "'But that is poor consolation for Jacobi de Jazz.' "'My legs feel as though they'd been broken,' he groaned. "'And, oh, my spine! It is just as though someone had struck it with an axe. I'm going to die. I know I'm going to die.' As they passed along, the people came out of their houses to watch them go by but it was like a funeral procession. No one spoke, nor did any one follow them. Jacobi's eyes grew dim, and presently he stumbled and clutched hold of Isidoro for support. The women were moving along on a trot like a herd of colts. Their voices rose, fell, rose again, and seemed to die away into the chill night air, overpowered at last by the even, strident notes of the cittern, like the gasps of some wounded animal left to die alone in the forest. At last they reached the little widow's house. A fire was burning in the slate-stone fireplace in the centre of the kitchen, laid on a little heap of live coals which had just been taken out of the oven. This last a huge round affair having a hole in the top to allow the smoke to escape occupied one corner its square door being quite large enough to allow of the passage of a man's body into its still hot interior jacobi accordingly now crept the soles of his heavy shoes appearing in the opening their worn nails shining in the firelight Placing themselves around the oven and the fireplace, the women continued their exorcism with renewed vigour, the red and purple lights from the fire falling upon their white blouses and yellow bodices. And Anna Rosa's round, open mouth looked like a black hole in the middle of her pink, shining face. The blind man, conscious of the fire, felt his way towards it little by little, though without ceasing to play. Reaching the edge of the fireplace, he put one of his bare feet upon the hot stone. whispered Uncle Isidoro warningly. "'Look out, boy, or you'll have a surprise!' The words were not out of his mouth 
when the youth gave a sudden bound backwards, shaking his burned foot in the air. For a moment he stopped playing, but the women never faltered. Standing there, erect and immovable around the huge oven, they might have been intoning a funeral dirge over some prehistoric sepulchre. "'He is coming out!' cried Aunt Anna Rosa suddenly, and Jacobi's great feet could be seen issuing from the oven. At the same instant the house-door was thrown violently open, and the black-robed figure of Priest Elias appeared. On hearing what had occurred, he had at once hastened to the house, hoping to arrive in time at least to prevent the ordeal of the oven. He was flushed and breathless, and his eyes flashed. On catching sight of him, one of the women gave a scream, and others stopped chanting, while the rest motioned to them to continue. Jacobi, meanwhile, had got out of the oven. "'Be quiet!' commanded the priest, panting. "'Aren't you ashamed of yourselves? No?' They all became silent. "'Go!' he said, opening the door and holding it with one hand, while with the other he almost pushed the women out. When the last had gone he became aware for the first time of the presence of Isidoro, and his face fell. "'You too?' he said reproachfully. "'Extraordinary! Most extraordinary! Don't you see what you have done among you to that poor man?' Then, changing his tone, "'Quick!' he said, "'go at once for the doctor, as fast as you can. And as for you,' turning to Jacobi, "'get to bed at once.' The sick man asked for nothing better. He was burning with fever. His head was shaking, and he could hardly see. Isidoro went off in search of the doctor, somewhat mortified, and yet, in spite of his usually hard common sense, his intelligence, and his deeply religious nature, quite unable to see what harm there could be in trying to cure a tarantula sting, with the rites, chants, and incantations employed by one's forebears from the days when giants inhabited the Nuragheth. The women had scattered into groups along the street, and were discussing the occurrence some of them a little ashamed, while others were inclined to blame the priest. One irrepressible young girl was beating her hands in time, and singing the lament which should have been chanted in chorus around Jacobi's bed, had not the priest's arrival prevented. "'O oh, mother of the spider! A stroke has fallen on me!' Some of the women would have stopped Isidoro, but he strode quickly on, buried in thought. At last they all dispersed, and the cold still evening settled down on the little widow's house, while overhead the stars looked like golden eyes veiled in tears. End of chapter 13 Recording by Tom Denham